0: Uh, navigating the closing verses of Philippians chapter three, it reminds me of a story I have often told about the explorer Hernando Cortez. Cortez had a plan, as one author tells it. He wanted to lead an expo- expedition into Mexico to capture its vast treasures. And when he told the Spanish governor his strategy, the governor got so excited that he gave him 11 ships and 700 men and little did the governor know that cortez had failed to tell him the entire plan after months of travel the 11 ships landed in veracruz in the spring of 1519 and as soon as the men unloaded the ships cortez instituted the rest of his plan and he destroyed the ships that's what you call commitment That's what you call no turning back. That's what you call burning your bridges. Cortez didn't have any bridges, so he burned the ships. By burning the ships, Cortez eliminated the options. He didn't know what he would encounter on his expeditions into the interior. He didn't know the strength of the people that he would be fighting, but he did know this, that there was now no escape routes for his men. If the fighting got too fierce, the expedition got too exhausting, there would be no talk of going back to where they came from and sailing home. Because in one fell swoop, he had not only eliminated their options, but he had created an intensely powerful motivation to succeed. Like it or not, they were now committed. Now, although historians still dispute the veracity of Cortez's burning his boats, It is doubtless that he did destroy them. That's in history. But he wasn't the first man to make such a bold strategic decision to ensure victory. As a matter of fact, about a thousand years before him, the world's greatest empire builder, Alexander the Great, burned his boats upon arrival on the shores of Persia. And again, by burning his boats, Alexander committed his men to victory over the Persians who far outnumbered the Greeks in great numbers. Considering what Alexander was facing, the decision to destroy the Greeks' only hope of retreat was an extraordinary one. Nonetheless, it proved to be the correct one. Now, all of us struggle in this world. In whatever season of life that you find yourself in, there is a struggle of sorts. In our thought life, in our actions, in our desires, every one of us constantly battling with the passions of what the world, our humanness, and the devil wants us to do, and what we know in our hearts that Jesus is drawing us toward. Right? How do you handle that battle? What strategy have you come up with to help assist you resist the pull of worldliness? What is your charted course of action when you're faced with the frustrations of illness or physical setbacks? How do you deal with the stress of mounting financial challenges in the midst of an unpredictable economy? Where would you turn if your spouse, your children, or your parents, or your pastor, or your friends were to betray you? Where do you look when you find yourself spiritually spent and exhausted? Now, if you haven't adopted the Cortez plan to annihilate the passage back to the old world, chances are strong that you will retreat to an old way of dealing with things. Is that right? And that, my friends, is where we can get into some serious spiritual trouble. We have all seen the shipwrecked lives of men and women who have tried to escape their frustration by going a little crazy, trying every snake oil the world has to offer. But if you are a follower of Christ, it won't take long before you come to the realization that the remedies of the world never work. They don't work. Not for the Christian. There is only one real remedy that delivers as promised. It's the intimacy and the fulfillment that we receive when we commit ourselves in faith to a relationship with the risen Christ. Amen? And that union will result in a joy that is far beyond the, what the world can ever offer us. And the first step in that process is connecting with God. And that is done through His Son, Jesus Christ. If you are already a believer, then you must reconnect every day. You must renew your relationship to the Jesus who saved you when you placed your trust in him. We must return to our first love. As believers, we need to torch the ships of the old life, eliminate the possibilities and the options of going back to Egypt, so to speak, cut off the possibility of retreat, just like Cortez did. He was focused on a new world, a new way of living. He left the past, he lived in the present, and he looked ahead to the future. And he determined that there would be no turning back. That is the way Christ wants us to live in this world. That's what Philippians 3 talks about. Cortez and Alexander had keen insight into an important principle. And here it is. Our focus determines our footsteps. Our focus determines our footsteps. The Apostle Paul put it another way when he wrote to the believers at Philippi. And I love the way that the, uh, it's rendered in the message. Eugene Peterson says this, By no means do I count myself an expert in all of this, but I've got my eye on the goal where God is beckoning us onward to Jesus. I'm off and running, and I am not turning back. One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, the New American Standard says. Goals were important to both Paul and Hernando Cortes, right? And though their goals were extremely different from one another, each of them understood an essential axiom in order to reach them. The focus of your mind determines the direction of your life. The way you think determines the way you will live. Yeah? Agree with that? Good, because that's what the whole premise of today's message is about. If you consistently think like the world, guess how you're going to live? You're going to end up living like the world. However, if your focus is riveted on what you are and who you are in Christ, your life will be transformed into Christ's image. That was Paul's message repeated on more than just the occasion of the letter to the Philippians. And we're going to discover that in a few moments. But in our pursuit of Christian maturity, one of the first principles we need to adopt is the one we've been uncovering in Philippians 3, that pressing on to perfection in Christ, maturity in Christ, means adjusting our pattern of life. And so let me give you a quick review of what we've gone over for the last two weeks. Number one, Paul says in verses 4 to 7 of chapter 3, you need to learn how to leave your past. Adopt a new set of values. Forget what you were before Christ. It's, it's loss, right? Counts for nothing. Number two, in verses 8 to 14, we saw Paul says, learn how to live in the present. We need to adopt or, or, or uh, adapt to a new sense of vigor and vitality. And I ask the question are you willing to do what it takes to press on to know Christ fully? To lose whatever it is Christ wants you to lose for the person of Christ? To lay hold of the purpose for which He saved you? But how do we keep that fire alive if you've kind of embarked on that trail? How do you keep it alive? Five elements that emerged last time that were pretty clear in Paul's life according to this letter to the Philippian believers. And they're all in verses 12 to to 16. There's a holy dissatisfaction that we need to have, a wholehearted dedication, singularly focused direction. You must be finish line oriented. An uncommon determination to press on toward the goal and ruthless discipline in order to keep on doing it. If the way that we think determines the the way that we're going to live, then it begs some very hard questions about how you and I are responding to the challenges we face on a day-to-day basis. In other words, what are you and I thinking? What are we thinking day-to-day? What is your ultimate goal for today? Did you even think about that this morning? What's your goal for today, this minute? This week? Next year? The next 10 years? Because it should be the same thing. Is Christ even involved in the equation? I want to become more like Christ, Paul says, in this minute this week, next week, next year, 10 years from now. It's the same goal. And so Paul continues unfolding this passage by saying if we're going to adjust our pattern of life in order to press on towards spiritual maturity in Christ, it's not just about learning how to leave the past and learning how to live in the present, but it goes much, much deeper than that. Your passion to press deeper into Christ rises and falls on the degree to which we learn to look to the future. Let's look at the verses 17 to 21 here in chapter 3. Brethren, Paul says, Join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern that you have in us. For many walk of whom I often told you and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things unto himself. Paul says, you know what's going to keep us going? We need to focus on a new vision. A new vision. We need to begin to start looking at everything on earth from heaven's point of view, where Jesus is. That's what it means to live in the kingdom of God. You've got to study the kingdom of God in the scripture. You'll be your whole life doing it. It means to look at everything from and live as if everything was done from heaven's point of view where Jesus is. So Paul says first, follow an honorable pattern of life in verses 17 to 19. He says, join following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. We need examples to follow, don't we? We do. If you're having trouble keeping track on your uh, keeping track with Christ, find someone you know who is living a godly life, someone who is spiritually strong where you're spiritually weak and follow their example. Ask them to mentor you. And become a mentor yourself to someone else. Don't just take all the time. You need to give. You need to play it out. You need to put into practice what somebody is mentoring you in and then mentor somebody else in that as well. Paul was able to say, be imitators of me just as I am of Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. Now, let me ask you, could you say that to somebody? Would you say that to somebody? Well, you say, no, I, I would never say that to somebody. But you're supposed to be saying that to people. We all are. Well, that doesn't make us perfect. Not one of us is perfect, but neither was Paul. It's great that he doesn't just tell people to follow his example, but he points to others as well. Look at verse 17. And observe, join in following my example, and observe those who walk according to the pattern that you have in us. others. One pastor gives this simple three-fold advice in determining your role models. Number one, choose your mentors slowly. Number two, study their private lives carefully. And number three, spend time with them regularly. That's it. That's pretty simple. Choose your mentors slowly. Study their private lives carefully and spend time with them regularly. Be careful whose example you follow, Paul says. How do they embrace and embody Christ? That's why you need to choose them slowly and observe their private lives carefully. Because frankly, people, we live among those who are enemies of the cross of Jesus Christ. Just like Paul said here. There are those who have an appearance of religion yet are driven not by a desire to serve Christ but by their own sensual appetites. Their focus is on exploiting the ministry for their own ends. They're they're idol chasers, basically, Paul says. Paul says, you know what? Steer clear of these people. Verse 18, For many walk of whom I often told you and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. Notice that phrase. Underline that phrase in your Bible because it's exactly the opposite of what I'm going to be telling you in a few minutes. These people set their minds on earthly things. That's a key thing right there in being careful who you follow. Instead, Paul says formulate a heavenly perspective on life. Verses 20 and 21. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. See, our citizenship is in heaven, not earth. The word citizenship here is the Greek word from which we derive our English word politics. You say great. Now, not politics in that sense. Our politics basically describe how we act, and how we act is determined by our homeland. Correct? If your mind is, if your homeland is on earth, you're going to act like the world. If your homeland is in heaven, you're going to act a whole lot differently, aren't you? You're going to live a whole lot differently. Our names, folks, are on a heavenly list, the Bible says. We live according to a heavenly law. We're loyal to a heavenly cause. And we're looking for the return of a heavenly Lord. That single-focused vision should change the way you and I operate on a day-to-day basis, and it should motivate us to keep pressing forward, keep pressing on. Colossians chapter 3. Verses 1 to 4. I told you Paul repeated this in a number of different places. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 4 says this, Since then you have been raised up with Christ. Set your hearts on the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Doesn't that sound just like Philippians three twenty and 21? Consider some of these great words I once read. Quote, Both the Bible and history bear witness to the fact that it's not so much big churches or big ministries that have the most impact in our world. It's big Christians. And by the way, he's not referring to physical stature, spiritual depth is what he's talking about. Quote, who stands fast? The responsible man who tries to make his whole life an answer to the question and call of God. Where are these responsible people? Dietrich Bonhoeffer said that. E.M. Bounds Got a famous series of books on prayer. Said this He said, The church is looking for better methods. God is looking for better men than women. A more contemporary writer wrote this recently It took only 12 God intoxicated men full of the Holy Spirit to turn the world upside down, or more accurately, right side up. 12 God intoxicated men. I love that terminology. Would you consider yourself to be a God-intoxicated, God-drenched man or woman? Would you? Don't you want to be? Don't you want to be? Don't you want, as one contemporary writer put it, to possess the backbone to dig in? To have a God-given uncommon valor to follow God's lead and do God's will regardless of how I might be perceived. Don't you want that? I want that. Don't you want to live your life as the Puritans used to say before an audience of one? I don't care what you think. I live my life before God. I care what he thinks. See, I do. I want that. And I know Jesus wants that for us. He wants the church to be filled with people like that. I'm convinced of it. But far too often, I'm ashamed to admit it, I become too comfortable with the ways and the tastes and the patterns of the world all around me. Don't you? I can get too enamored with the bells and whistles of the contemporary church and I can lose sight of the God whose church it really is. In his book, God in the Wasteland, David Wells Describes what has happened to the modern church. In his view, God rests too lightly, too inconsequentially on us. His truth, listen to this, his truth is too distant, his grace is too ordinary, his judgment is too benign, his gospel is too easy, and his Christ is too common. Those are some pretty heavy duty words. his truth too distant, his grace too ordinary, his judgment too benign, his gospel too easy, his Christ too common. That about sums it up, doesn't it? But you know, that was not the case with an early Christian father by the name of Polycarp, Bishop of Smyrna in the second century. He was a man who was the epitome of heavenly mindedness. Marcus Aurelius had ordered the persecution of all Christians, the story of how this frail elderly, he was well into his 80s, by the way, when this happened, elderly man graciously and firmly handled his arrest and subsequent martyrdom, along with 11 others from Philadelphia, not Philadelphia, the United States, is one of the most astounding examples of what happens when a life is full of God, God intoxicated, God drenched. He had, as one man has said, a bold otherworldliness which enabled him to shamelessly embrace God's unfashionable ways in the hour of temptation. That hour when giving in would have been way easier than digging in. Let me read you an excerpt from the martyrdom of Polycarp from the Apostolic Fathers. Herod, the police captain, and his father, Polycop's father, father, came out to meet him. They tried to persuade him, saying, Why, what harm is there in saying Caesar is Lord and offering incense and thereby saving yourself? I mean, think about your age. You're 86 years old. And when they persisted, he said, quote, I am not about to do what you are suggesting to me. The proconsul tried to persuade him to recant, but when the magistrate persisted and said, Swear the oath and I will release you. Revile Christ. Polycarp replied in these now famous words. He said, For 86 years I have been his servant and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? Great words. But as he continued to insist, saying, Swear by the genius of Caesar, Polycarp answered this way, if you vainly suppose that I will swear by the genius of Caesar as you request, and pretend not to know who I am, listen carefully. I am a Christian. Unquote. Proconsul said, I'll have wild I'll have wild beasts and I'll throw you to them. Polycarp said, Call for them. Then he said to him, I'll have you consumed by fire. Polycarp said this, he said, You threaten with a fire that burns only briefly and after just a little while is extinguished. For you are ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment, which is reserved for the ungodly. But why do you delay? Come do what you wish. I think this has a lot to to say about what Jesus said. Don't worry about what you're going to say when you're brought before the government. I'll give you the words. The Holy Spirit will give you the words in that hour. Well, it gave them to him, didn't didn't the Holy Spirit? So the materials prepared for the pyre were placed around him, and as they were about to nail him, this is what he said. He said, leave me as I am, for he who enables me to endure the fire will enable me to remain on this pyre without moving. So they tied him. And then he, having been bound, looked up to heaven, and he prayed for them. And prayed for himself. You see, Polycarp was a God intoxicated, God drenched man. To him, following Christ was no joke, and it was certainly not a popularity contest. The tenor of his life was God saturation, and the picture of his death proved without a doubt that his perspective was God centered. I want to be that committed, I want to be that concentrated. I want this church to be that dug in. I want you to be that sold out. But I also know that the only way to maintain that kind of composure when the cultural pressure and the social persecution arrive at our doorstep is in the weight that we place on the truth that we are citizens of another kingdom people. We are citizens of another kingdom. We belong to a king whose kingdom is not of this world. There's no other way we will stand firm or stand strong because the way we think determines the way we live. Colossians 3, 1-4 outlines this so succinctly Again, superimposing this text over Philippians 3, 20 and 21 gives us this great picture of Paul's mindset, reminding believers of their deep connection with Christ by virtue of their faith. Paul steps up the intensity in this letter and issues an extreme challenge, one which we desperately need to embrace and repeat over and over and over to each other every single day. Since we're in Christ, let's live like it. Since you're in Christ, live like it. He's writing to Christians here. In effect, what he's speaking to, he's speaking to every single believer in this room. Every believer in this room. You've been raised with Christ, Paul says. Look at at verse 1. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking those things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. You've been raised with Christ. It's a done deal. And it's nothing you did either. It's something that was done to you. When you became a believer, you were spiritually transferred from the darkness of a sinful world to the kingdom of God. Turn back to Colossians 1, verse 13. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You were transformed from being spiritually dead to being spiritually alive. Amen? Look at Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were, say it, dead in our transgressions made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus you believe that do you believe it cuz if we believe things we live them out right we do If you're a Christian, you have been transformed and transferred. Your true citizenship is in heaven, Paul says. You're an alien. You're an alien. You're a stranger to this world. People look at us and wonder why we're so weird. Because you're an alien. You're a stranger. You're in it, but you're no longer of it. Resident aliens is what the Scripture describes, right? The Greek word means without a home in this world. We're transplants. We're from away. Here's the question. Would anyone in your personal world even know that? Would they know that? Okay, so what's the point you're saying? What's the point, Russ? How does this relate to my life? My crisis. How in the world should we live in the world? That's what you're saying, right? Paul unveils three things here that not only can we still apply as we approach our temporary life in today's world as Christ followers, but we must apply if we're going to do it. Number one, real quickly. Aim high. Consistently seek the goal. Colossians 3, one If you've been raised up with Christ, seat the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of the Father. What's the goal? What's the goal? Tell me me what the goal is of Christian life. Glorify God. God. What else? Christlike, to become conformed to the image of Christ. Read Romans chapter 8. What are we saved for? To be conformed to the image of Christ, Romans eight twenty nine. To be Christ-like in all of our being and our behavior. You see, success is not to pursue a master plan that you have devised for your life, but to get on board with the master's plan that he has devised for your life. The one he has planned out since before the foundation of the world. And that changes our entire perspective, shouldn't it? It requires a change in our perspective. That was the secret to Paul's passion, by the way, and perspective, because he kept seeking the goal. The goal to be Christ-like. It's the highest goal. We never complete it until we meet him face-to-face. That's his life, inside and out. Would become all that Christ designed it to become. Is that your goal? Is that mine? Because every ambition that we have, every attitude that we harbor, every allegiance we subscribe to, every action we perform should be performed with heaven in mind. Everyone. According to one writer, we're to operate according to a different standard with different goals and different motivations. Everything about us, our perspective on possessions, lifestyle, and relationships will be foundationally different from the world around us. We worship what we cannot see. We love what we cannot hold, and we live for what we cannot own. I don't care how vehemently you want to resist being viewed by the world as different. You need to face the facts, and so do I. If we are a Christ follower, we are different. Aren't we? We just might as well accept it, and the sooner the better. Here's the hard-line truth. You know what the greatest challenge facing most American Christians today is? Indeed, the greatest challenge facing you and me today is not persecution. It's seduction. It's seduction. Ultimately, Christ must be central in a believer's life, not the things of the world that we live in. And we're seduced by those things all the time, every moment of every day. We may think we see things from his perspective, but do we really? How do you operate in your life on a day-to-day basis? You think about heaven first or the world first? You get up in the morning and say, I'm going to work today because Jesus granted me this great opportunity of a job so that I could provide for my... Do you think that way? Or do you think, oh, i got to get up and go to work today? That's, that's an earthly perspective, Right? In his book, The Mission of God, Chris Wright suggests that a radical God-centered perspective turns inside out and upside down some of the common ways we think about the Christian life. Constantly, it's forcing us to open our eyes to the big picture rather than shelter in the cozy narcissism of our own little, tiny, small worlds. And that's what we do. It's all about me, after all. It is. That's the way we live. I'm just being honest with you. We have to fight against it all the time. For instance, we ask, where does God fit into the story of my life? When the real question is, where does my little life fit into the great story of God's mission? We want to be driven by a purpose that has been tailored just right for our own individual lives. When we should be seeing the purpose of all of life, including our own, wrapped up in the great mission of God for the whole creation. We talk about applying the Bible to our lives. We do that in small groups, right? All the time. Sunday mornings when I preach. Applying the Bible to our lives. What would it mean to apply our lives to the Bible instead? Assuming the Bible to be the reality, the real story to which we are called to conform ourselves. We wrestle with making the gospel relevant to the world. But in this story, God is about the business of transforming the world to fit the shape of the gospel. We argue about what we can legitimately be included in the mission that God expects from the church when we should ask what kind of church God wants for the whole range of His mission. I may wonder what kind of mission God has for me when I should be asking what kind of me God wants for His mission. See, it just turns everything around from the way that we presently think. What does it mean to seek the things above where Christ is? I think it means making an all-out effort to let what is true in Christ's realm be true in our lives here and now. You know what it is? It is to pursue life in response to the Lord's model prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May your will, may your kingdom come down here right? You want what's up there to come down here, not what's down here to go up there. That's the way we think, right? Last week I talked about we pay so much attention, on, put so much weight on our conversion and so little weight on our Christ-likeness and conformity to His image afterwards. Why? Because most gospel presentations and most people when they talk about the gospel are only concerned about one thing. About getting out of here and going up there. But when Jesus said pray thy kingdom come thy will be done he's talking about heaven coming down here in our lives now until Christ comes and takes us up there. That's what it means to seek the things above. So what is true then, about where Christ is. If we're supposed to be seeking that first, what is true about that? Well, think about it. Where Christ is, number one, it's a place of sovereignty. He rules. Does he rule here in your life? Number two, it's a place of victory. It says here in Colossians where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. He he sits as the one who has conquered the forces of evil and death. No matter who's winning down here, he's conquered them. It's a place of victory. Thirdly, it's a place of purity. He forgives. No sin, no darkness, no unrighteousness. Fourthly, it's a place of security because we have an advocate in heaven who constantly intercedes on our behalf. Read Romans chapter 8, verse 31. Hebrews 7, 25. It's a place of security. And finally, it's a place of availability. In Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16 says that he is always available to give us mercy and then we can find grace in our time of need, right? Think about that. Sovereignty, victory, purity, security, availability. Do we live our lives like that? Seeking the things above means centering my life in Christ and all that He is. It means ordering your life by what you know to be true about Him. That's aiming high. But beyond that, Paul says, we also need to look ahead and constantly concentrate on the goal. Colossians chapter 3, verse 2, Set your mind on the things above, not on the things above. Of earth. I like the way the Living Bible puts this verse. Let heaven fill your thoughts. Don't spend your time worrying about things down here. I heard John MacArthur say this one time, that he saw a disturbing trend. Now, get your mind around this. Concentrate on what I'm saying here. He says, it is the unsaved that are currently seeking, probing, and asking questions about heaven. Now, here's the hard part especially when they lose friends and loved ones, okay? Now, here's the hard part. The church, however, he's observed, is more concerned with things like staying healthy, working out, getting debt-free, building wealth, getting on board with the latest technology, and who's winning the latest so-called reality show. Those are hard words. What do you hear conversation amongst Christians in the churches most of the time. It's about those things, isn't it? A little convicting. See, it's not enough to seek heaven. You have to think heaven as well. This is not easy stuff, folks. This requires incredible discipline. Spiritual formation. But it starts with one little step at a time. It starts with a decision that I'm going to do this. I'm listening to this series on my iPad by Dallas Willard, Final Thoughts on Heaven and the Kingdom of God. It was recorded about a year before he died. If you know anything about Dallas Willard, he's just an incredible spiritual formation guy and he's in his 80s. And listening to this thing is like listening to an incredible mentor, sit there and give you and share life of 80 years walking closely with Christ. And um, some of the things that he's saying about the kingdom of God are really challenging me. He said, you know, you know where to start? The easiest thing to do, you want to know how this works? you read your Bible, and when you, when you get to a place where Jesus tells you to do something, you stop and you go do it. If you do that every time you read something that Jesus tells you to do, trust me, you'll walk with Jesus, and you'll know the truth. That's what it says. Do and you shall know, Jesus said. Obey my commands, and you will know the truth that I speak. We talk about what Jesus says all the time. And I think we do apply some of it. We do do it. But I mean, if we really did this every single day of our lives, it would be mind-boggling. It would be life-transforming. It would, the church would look a whole lot different than it does now, wouldn't it? The world would look a lot different than it does now. You need to think heaven. It means adopting this principle, I refuse to let what will perish rule the eternal. Paul's not saying that earthly things don't matter, but for the believer, they're not all that matter. Without a doubt, the greatest need among God's people today, the greatest need in my own life, is to live in the light of who we really are and what we really have in Christ. Isn't that true? Most of us live far below the reality of those things. In your bulletin, there's a sheet that I put in there You study this stuff. You go through this list. This is a rich heritage, folks, that we have. And it's all in the Scripture. These are the things above that Paul is talking about that we should be concentrating on because they will determine whether we live like spiritual rad men or spiritually rich men and women. If we really believed what's listed on those lists and lived accordingly, what a difference our lives would make in this world. So how would you respond to the question if I asked you or somebody asked you, who are you? After reading those scriptures and understanding their significance and accepting them as as true, you and I as followers of Christ should have a definitive response. Who am I? I'm a child of God, the bride of His Son, the dwelling place of His Holy Spirit, and that identity has been given to me by grace. See, the way you think determines the way you live. The focus of your mind will set the direction of your life. So aim high, commit yourself fully to the goal, look ahead, concentrate your focus on the goal, and then finally, press on. Here we go again. Paul's doing the press on thing again. Continue toward the goal and don't confuse the goal. In other words, no retreating. Look at verses 3 and 4 of Colossians 3. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ who is our life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Look at the motivators there that should push us forward as followers of Christ. Number one, we're motivated by the truth about our past. For you have died. You know what the Greek word means here? Dead. Dead means dead. There's no fancy hidden meaning there. It means dead, dead. It's something definite. It's something distinct that happened in your past. Once for all, on the day you accepted Christ and his forgiveness by faith, you died to the old man. How much influence does the world have on a dead person? None. Go down to the morgue and see for yourself. They aren't affected by the attractions of the world. You can dangle all kinds of diamonds in front of their faces and it's not going to attract them one iota. That is exactly what the Apostle Paul says. We are to think about ourselves and our relationship to the power of sin. We are dead to it. Dead to it. I came across a great story about two sisters who were party animals. You know, think Kardashians, right? Living the wild life day and night Amazingly, they came to faith and found new life in Christ, and as usual, they received an invitation to a party and sent this message as their RSVP, quote, "We regret that we cannot attend because we recently died." Unquote. "I should be so motivated to live for Christ, right? By the truth of my past identification with Christ. I died to that old man. We're motivated also by the truth about our present. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. This is the truth about you. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. You know what that tells me? It tells me a number of things. First, my real life, my spiritual life is secret. It's a mystery. In fact, I don't even know everything that it entails. But someday I will, but not yet something I have to discover. That's why the only way I can stay sane is to entrust my life to God. Secondly, it means security, double protection, hidden with Christ in God. No one or nothing is a real threat to my spiritual life because it's completely enveloped by God's hands. Right? Third, the fact that a believer's life is hidden with Christ in God gives us an identity. We are a sheep. We hear his voice and no one can separate us from his love. Get motivated by the truth about your past. You died. Be moved by the truth of your present. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. And finally, we're motivated by the truth about our future. Verse 4, when Christ who is our life is revealed, then we will be also. That's a great motivation. The greatest motivation is not necessarily in knowing that we will share life with Christ, but as Paul says here, it is the fact that our life is Christ. When Christ who is our life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. One day it will be clear who's who. The veneer will be stripped and there'll be no mystery anymore. No question, those who are his will be revealed. Folks, it will happen. Philippians 3:20 says it's going to happen. We're going to be transformed. Dear friends, now we're children of God, and what we will be has not yet been known. But we know when he appears, we'll be like him, for we will see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope purifies himself just like he's pure. It's going to happen. The thought of that day ought to invigorate and motivate me to live for Christ today. I'm going to leave you with these motivating words that have challenged me again in recent days. I don't know about you, but I don't want to play around with my life, the author says. I want to leave it all out on the field for Christ's sake. I don't want to be a mile wide and an inch deep spiritually. I want to possess the backbone to dig in and to be unfashionable. I'm ashamed of those moments when I'm afraid to be a fool for Christ because the world might think I'm strange. I want to have a God-given, uncommon valor to follow God's lead and to do God's will regardless of how I might be perceived. I want to be a God-drenched man. I want to be able to refuse to give in and go along with the crowd. I want to be a God-intoxicated man that resolves to live my life coram deo in the, before the face of God and who is not afraid of anything this world can do to me. Tomorrow morning, when the world, my own flesh, or the devil, hits me square in the face and attempts to seduce me into compromise, I want to be able to say, as Polycarp did, if you vainly suppose that I will do as you request and pretend not to know who I am, Listen carefully. I am a Christian.